0: TVO.org. I want to tell you, present here some of the signs of this dimension, the, of the end of the world, in the sense that we are approaching, there is on the horizon a certain zero level where things reach a limit. So let me begin with a film that I know already for four or five years because the director who is my friend was kind enough to send me uh, a copy. Uh, the premiere of the film was, I think, uh, was, I think, uh, not a premiere, but it was shown a month ago here at Toronto Festival. If some of you were lucky enough to see it, if not, please go and see it. It's maybe one of the most morally depressing films that I've seen. <laughs> it's called The Art of Killing, made by a Danish documentary Uh, 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 filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer. It was shot in the last years in Indonesia, but they needed years to so that it's possible to show it in public because, of course, lives were threatened and so on. You will immediately see why. This film, shot in Medan, Indonesia, mostly in 2007, reports on a case of obscenity which... Reaches to the extreme. Uh, There is in Indonesia, all this is real, it's a documentary, a group of murderous gang members and members of the military, uh, Anwar Congo and some of his friends, this is an Indonesian now politician and officer, who in the mid, in 1966, you remember when there was a civil war, first the attempted communist coup d'etat, then the anti-communist Suharto regime uh, uh, did strike back and around, the idea is that around two and a half million of people, mostly Chinese, allegedly communists, were slaughtered. Uh, This group, Anwar Congo and his friends, organized at that time in 66, a murderous gang. They were serially uh, uh, raping, torturing, killing thousands of people. Now comes the... They were not only ready, but they even paid Oppenheimer, they didn't know what he will do with it, to do a film on this. And they without any shame, that's so depressing, they openly display stage, show, talk about, show some photos, how they were killing, murdering, raping, torturing, and so on. And the high point of obscenity, for me at least, is a scene when on a local TV show in October 2007, TV show on Indonesian state TV, this group presented itself, and it's horrible, it's like, you know, a couple of hundred people, public talk with them, and a nice lady moderator, and for example, this guy, Anwar Kongo, I mean, you have to see it to believe your eyes and ears. After he explains this mode of torturing, the moderator says, look how inventive these guys are. One big applause for Mr. Anwar and so on. And they all applaud and so on and so on. I mean, it's absolutely breathtaking. But uh, and even, so again, you have a group of people who Right-wing murderous thugs who even don't have this, let's call it, minimum of decency that even the Nazis had. You know, you know what Heinrich Himmler said in that famous speech in Poznan, Poznan, in '43. This was a speech to SS officers and he was giving them lessons on how to do the Holocaust and he was telling them, unfortunately, your activity will have to remain a secret an empty page in history books, but it will nonetheless be the most glorious chapter of German history. But you see, they at least treated it as a private dirty secret. You know, this is the typical right-wing logic in the sense of a true patriot is not just the one who is ready to die for his country, but the one who is ready to lose his soul for his country, to do horrible things, This. True hero is ready to do crimes for his country. So here it's not even that. They simply publicly boast about it all. And even more, then they explain how they did it. They explain that before they become killers, they were in love with Hollywood film noir mostly, Humphrey Bogart, all that. So they imagined themselves as noir detective, Humphrey Bogart, whoever, uh, they imagined as being a Hollywood noir hero when they were doing their terrifying acts. This was their imaginary. Now we can do a lot here. I don't have time to go into it. About how, how you put it? The use of poetry in ethnic cleansing. This is my old thesis and I was once almost beaten in my own country by some poets who didn't like the idea. My formula was no ethnic cleansing without poetry. You always need a poet to avoid a misunderstanding. I'm not saying all poets are like that. (laughs) There are mega great poets. All I'm saying is that I'm a little bit tired as a philosopher to listen for decades, you know, this idea philosophers with their notion of totality total rationalism laid the foundation for totalitarianism and so on where well, poets are at least as guilty as we are <laughs> why it's very simple my idea here uh, we are basically half decent people if I were to be ordered, let me take, again, sorry, somebody has to suffer. <laughs> if somebody were to tell me, pick a, take a knife and pick your eyes out, well, unfortunately, I would have some problems to do it. So you need some strong quasi-religious mythic narrative which serves as a screen enabling you to do it. So that then, through this narrative, I no longer perceive myself just as a brutal torturer, but something who is doing necessary, although cruel things, on behalf of some sacred cause, nation, and so on and so on. You need, you need something like poetry. And it would be very nice to go through all ethnic cleansing cases that we know. I, of course, began in my own country, ex-Yugoslavia and discovered it's not only Radovan Karadzic, the leader of Bosnian Serbs, who is now in Hague. All other post-Yugoslav nations had their own poets who, as it were, with beautiful national myths laid the foundations uh, for it. What interests me is, to put it in Lacanian terms of Jacques Lacan, The status of big other, big other in the sense of the public symbolic order, the unwritten or written rules which determine what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. Another paradox, I want to argue here for a good use of dogmaticism. I think that I'm totally in ethical matters for dogmaticism. In what sense? Let's take rape. Sorry, but I wouldn't like to live in a society where you you would have to argue all the time against rape. I would like to live in a society where the fact that rape is unacceptable is simply... Part of our substance, it's automatically assumed so that if somebody plays this, we all know them, stupid, tasteless games. Ooh, but women really enjoy it. They are not, don't, don't, uh, not ready to admit. You don't even feel the need to, to argue against. The guy just appears as a weird jerk, eccentric, stupid, or whatever. I claim the moment you have to reason, we are already lost. So this is, no, let me give you an example here, that's what terrified me with Ronald Reagan. I remember, you are probably, most of you, too, too, too young for this. Uh, once Reagan was accused, Ronald Reagan, that his, uh, some of his friends, that he has many friends who are Holocaust deniers. And he said something which was, I think, quite funny, but in a terrifying way. Namely, he read, no, it's not true that I have any sympathy for Holocaust denial. Whenever at my dinner table somebody denies Holocaust, I always insist, no, this is not true, there was a Holocaust. Well, the question is, okay, but what kind of friends did he have if he had all the time to argue that there was a Holocaust, you know? So, you see my point. My point is, and here I see that we are approaching, as it were, uh, if you want, uh, 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 the end of the world. My point is that, isn't what is happening there in Indonesia? And let me be very clear here. I don't want to play any of the two easy games, either to blame simply global capitalism, like Indonesians are good, ethical guys who were just confused by universal capitalism, were thrown out of their ethical ethical substance and can act like this, put the blame just on the developed West. But I also don't accept, of course, the opposite Western racist version, you know, like, oh, primitive Indonesians, they don't have any real ethics. No, I think uh, we, First, the phenomenon, as I will try to show soon, is getting much more universal than it may appear. This kind of, a, let's call it, disintegration of the big other, in the very naive, forget about Jacques Lacan here, sense of automatic reliance or on certain basic dogmas. Why not? And I think progress can be measured precisely by the level of dogmatism in the sense that if there are many ethical dogmas which makes which make rape simply unacceptable, nonsensical which make uh, which make uh, i don't know racism nonsensical and so on and so on that's one of the few signs of progress so uh, again the question is what is happening with the social body that something like that is acceptable. You see my point? I'm not worried about Anwar Congo and those guys. They are just scum, whatever they are. What worries me is what kind of society it is where it is acceptable to talk about this, boast about this in public. And here things are more complex than it may appear. Because uh, let me give you another example. Now I will go through a couple of uh, examples here. Uh, 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 some two decades ago, I think, there was a well-known scandal in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, across the river from Manhattan in New York, where uh, a woman was slowly beaten, tortured and killed. Uh, uh, with a courtyard in the middle of uh, housing development, and it was later established that at least 70 people were watching this from their windows. None of them called the police. And what is depressing is that, you know, it's not that they would have to identify themselves and then be afraid that the guy would come and also beat them. It could have been done totally anonymously. No one did it. Okay, this was read as an example of moral decadence, disintegration of ordinary people in the United States. No, I think it's something more ambiguous that happened here. Because when some sociologists looked into it more in detail, they discovered that all people had the same reaction. Namely, I thought someone else will do it. It's just that they relied, everyone relied on someone else. And uh, the interesting thing is that I think someone told me that they tried to do some kind of experiment where they tested this, namely, staged artificially, of course, a situation where the guy, for example, it was more a lonely house, who was observing this, knew well that he is the only one who is observing it, and in that case, almost all of them did call, did call the uh, police. What I want want to say here is that uh, how are we nonetheless to interpret what the two examples nonetheless share, Indonesian example and Brooklyn example, this, let's call it naively, growing indifference, I don't care or another one will do it, this reluctance to ethically engage yourself. The usual thing to say is to refer to egotism. You know, this is the usual Catholic or generally religious strategy, oh, in our era of hedonist egotism, nobody cares for the common good, and so on and so on. Well, I'm totally opposed to this reading. Here I want to refer to Walter Benjamin who already said that capitalism is a religious phenomenon. And the way I read this is in a very naive way. Look at an ideal capitalist, ideal type I mean. I know some of them, fanatical businessmen. Well, all I can tell you is if ever I encountered a non-hedonist and non-egotist guy, it's a totally dedicated capitalist. My God, a proper capitalist is ready, I don't know, to ruin his family life, practically not to sleep, work nine night and day, just that. There is circulation of and expansion of capital. It's not, capitalists are not hedonist egotists. They are, on the contrary, extremely dedicated to some perverted, but nuns, nonce- perverted, quasi-ethical cause. You know, you have a cause, capital has to circulate, and basically you don't care. I ruin nature, I ruin my life, doesn't matter, it has to function. This is why I claim that uh, we don't need to fight for ecology. In some stupid moralistic way, like usually people say, oh, we think only in short terms, what about our uh, children, and so on, and so on. No, uh, the problem is not that we are too egotist today. The problem is that if we try to rehabilitate the term egotism in a proper way of rational interest in your own good, then I claim paradoxically in our consumerist society of global capitalism, it's maybe more difficult than ever to be a real egotist. Because on the one hand, again, as a capitalist you are not egotist. On the other hand, even the way commodities function more and more, They don't function in an egotist way. The deepest appeal of commodities is anti-egotism. What do I mean by this? Another sign for me of the end of the world. Did you read this now? A month, a little bit over a month ago, in August 2012, uh, media reported that from December of this year, tobacco companies in Australia will no longer be allowed to display their... distinctive colors, brand designs, and logos on cigarette packs. To make smoking as unglamorous as possible, the packs of cigarettes will come in uniformly drab shade of olive, and it will be without logo, just a cigarette, this, and apart from information that this is a cigarette, you will get Sorry, it will not, I just have here. You will get a big photo, extremely disgusting, like of eye of, of, of getting blind, of, of, uh, of your lungs open, all black, of an impotent penis, whatever. Absolutely disgusting. The idea is, of course, to make people, to stop, I mean, it's obvious the idea. But I claim, although, okay, People may think this is no longer a commodity universe because there is no logo and so on and so on. There is no longer commodity aesthetics, it's on the contrary. The package of the product openly, graphically, draws attention to the dangerous and harm qualities of its product. Is this still then commodity logic? I claim it is, and maybe even, the most efficient one. This idea came to me in Germany when I saw already years ago there, a wonderful, in a terrifying sense, poster for cigarettes. It wasn't Marlboro, but they imitated that famous cowboy. Maybe it was like this. Uh, uh, It was, uh, on a poster, the usual cowboy, and on the bottom, of course, that obligatory statement, smoking is dangerous for your health. Uh, but the cowboy is pointing with his hand, with his fingers, towards that statement. And the message was, in German, jetzt erst rechts. Now it's for the real. And I think it was a wonderful male chauvinist message. It was, are you a coward if you are a true man? Now that you know that it's dangerous, now you will do it. (laughs) I mean, I I think that uh, from the very beginning consumerism works like this. I don't think we really care about all that bullshit, oh, it has so much vitamins, so much this, so much that, if I may call it in this obscene way, in authentic consumerism, there is always, I think, this excess of, it's dangerous, but that's why I want to do it. In. Uh, even in, of course, this is not consumerism, but even in some traditional societies in a much more, if you think, I doubt, authentic way, they played. For example, I was told in Japan that, they, that it's a almost sacred, ritualistic thing to eat a certain fish. And the whole point is that that fish is poisonous and there is a certain chance that you will die. But that's precisely, that's precisely uh, the point. So, again, my point here is that, uh, that here is another example of non-egotism. How? Publicity does not address you simply as an egotist, rational egotist. Take care of your health and so on and so on. But beneath all this, there is a much stronger superego inj- injunction, no? in the sense of you may die, and that's why if you are a true man, you will do it, and so on and so on. So let me go on. What type of egotism are we then talking about today? Now I come to, I don't know if you know it, I don't think you do, but this is a story even more depressive than the one from Indonesia, I have a friend in China who sent me all the documents about this. It happened a couple of months ago in China. A story which in a strange way resembles one of the Bertolt Brecht's so-called learning plays. Brecht wrote in 2930 a learning play with the title The Exception and the Rule. It's a simple didactic communist play where a rich merchant and his poor servant are traversing a desert. Because of some storm, they almost run out of water and then the merchant... Sorry. The servant approaches the merchant with a bottle offering him, because he's a good guy, a little bit of water that he still has. But the merchant... Thinks that the servant is trying to kill him and kills the servant. Then you have the court in session and the judge gives right to the merchant because the judge says, yes, probably this was an exceptionally good servant, but this is the exception. It would have been typical in such a situation for the servant to try to attack The master, so the master was right to react the way he did. Something even more horrible than this, it's not a joke, happened in China. It was, sorry, already half a decade ago. An elderly, in one of these anonymous, no, this was even not anonymous, in Nanjing, a friend sent me all the documentation. Uh, An elderly woman fell while getting uh, off a bus. She fell down when the door was open, and uh, a young, she was 65 years old and she broke her hip. Uh, Behind her on the bus, there was a young decent guy, relatively wealthy, but decent. So when he saw, my God, woman there falling down, broken, he also stepped down, helped her, and when he saw that she, is, uh, she cannot walk, he called a taxi, took her to a hospital, and even gave her a little bit of money. Uh, a week later, after the woman got home, her relatives convinced her to prosecute the guy. The reasoning was, what normal person would have helped a woman like that? No normal person So. The fact that he helped her means that he must have been responsible, he probably pushed her down. Okay, the thing got to the court, and the depressive thing is that the judge gave right to the woman. The judge said that uh, that uh, uh, no normal person would have acted. I quote now literally the judgment. No normal person would be as kind as thank you this guy claimed he was. So since he was so kind, it's clear that he is guilty, and he was punished quite a lot of money, a couple of tens of thousands of dollars in US money, and so on, and so on. Uh, Now, uh, what is happening here? I think the thing is much more complex than it may appear. It's not simply egotism or whatever. Chinese are basically good people. Something else is happening. Namely, this case caused quite a shock, of course, then in China, and even the official media, the People's Daily, made big opinion polls. They asked tens of thousands of young people, between 20 and 35, what would you have done if you were to walk along the street, and you would have to see somebody there, bleeding, dying, or whatever. Would you have stopped and helped him or not? And the situation was made clear. It's not that there is a bad guy there beating the dying person, so that you can say, no, no, I'm afraid to... No, no, the guy is alone. You don't risk anything, the guy who is dying. The shock was that 87% of people said, no, I would not help. Then they specified their answer, they say I would first look around if there is a CTV, that camera, no? If it is, then maybe I would have helped, if not, and so on and so on. So uh, I think that the uh, explanation of this, it's a, a very sad one, it's that in today's capitalism, and this is not about China, Uh, the limit between public and private space is shifting, changing. Uh, This friend of mine in China is a sociologist there, and he told me that his reading, and I tend to agree with it, is that more and more with the dissolution of old communal forums, even when we are formally at least in public, like on a square or where with hundreds of other people, even when we are there, we still experience ourselves as being in private. We ignore each other as if we are just different monarchs each in our private space, passing by each other, but no public, you need something more, like the, the, the TV camera or whatever, to make it a public space proper. And I think the same goes even for sexuality. I think that all this culture of confession and so on, it's privacy invading public space. <coughs> uh, or this is, I think, also how Internet works. Because, you know, when you tell all your secrets, show your photos, whatever, masturbate uh, in front of your Skype, whatever, <laughs> you... The paradox is that you are still alone, you are still private. This is a kind of a shared privacy. You can be wired through all the world, but it's absolutely not the same as, you know, that proverbial exhibitionist gesture. That still addresses a public space, the embarrassment. Here it's privacy. That's... An- so what does all this mean for, for sex? Ah, here I'm also a pessimist, not a total pessimist, I just note uh, tendencies. (coughs) Uh, Namely, what I see is uh, that uh, if once promiscuity was transgressive and the idea was that uh, passionate individual sex, love and so on is patriarchal, oppressive, I think that now, more and more, it's almost the opposite which is imposed as uh, the norm. What do I mean by this? Okay, let me begin with popular culture and then give you some theoretical examples. Did you see the last James Bond film? Not the new one, now Skyfall. I've shown uh, uh, Quantum of Solace. Politically pretty progressive, I mean. Basically, to cut a long story short, James Bond saves the Morales regime in Bolivia from some company which wants to control water. But did you notice something very strange about this film? It's the first James Bond where at the end there is no sex, between Bond and Bond girl. They just embrace, we are too traumatized, okay. (laughs) Now you will say this is an exception. I'm not so sure. Now I go to the really lowest of the lowest. Did you see some Dan Brown films or novels? Did you notice, for example, that already in uh, Da Vinci Code, you have a couple, Robert Langdon and the (laughs) grand-grand-grand-grand-Sophie, daughter of Christ, but there is no sex between the two of them. And I claim that we have here a kind of a strange displacement. Even Jesus Christ has to engage in love. You know, the thesis of the film, the secret. To cover up the fact that there is no sex here, you know. I think it's strictly correlative. You have sex up there, but not here. Uh, With angels and demons, it's even worse. There still is sex in the novel, between Vittoria Vetra, the scientist, and the same Robert Langdon in the end. But did you notice in the film there is no sex? Where are we coming? Once we said, Hollywood is adding sex to make the story more attractive. Now, Hollywood is uh, deleting sex, and so on. I think this is, again, a very sad tendency. The tendency is that sex is effectively becoming less and less authentically intersubjective. It it is more and more uh, solipsistic. I will tell you a story, maybe you know it, it was told to me by my good friend Alain Badiou, and then I checked it up in the States, you have the same phenomenon. Namely, uh, in French and in English it works. You say, you use the verb fall. You say tombe l'amour, fall, to fall in love. Okay, but you found a publicity of one dating and marriage agency in France, where basically the message was we will enable you to find yourself in love without the fall, sans tombe. And then I found an American agency who is doing the same. And I found this very sad because the idea is this one. With all the permissivity and so on, but you know what is love? Love is by definition a fall. If I exaggerate a little bit, love is, I walk on the street quite accidentally, I stumble upon a person and, oh my God, all my ordinary life is ruined, now I have a new focus, everything changes. I mean, authentic love is very traumatic in this sense. Even passionate sex is traumatic in this sense. You are obsessed by it like I want to have sex with that person even if I, even if whatever. And I claim that more and more this is becoming, this is experienced as too much. I claim the predominant ideology today is not marry and procreate. No, the, the predominant ideology today I claim is some kind of enlightened Western Buddhism, I call it. <laughs> Be authentically yourself, Or, as they say, the stupid Yodas uh, and so on in in, uh, Star Wars, uh, don't get too attached to worldly subjects, which means precisely don't fall. Don't get attached, keep distance. This is my eternal problem with otherwise my personal friend Judith Butler. I agree with her description, you know, sex. Sorry, our sexual identity is not eternally, naturally g- given. It's performatively enacted through uh, rituals of repetition, ironic displacement. My problem is just why does she think that she is describing anything subversive? I claim she's just describing precisely the predominant ideology today. Now you will say, but what about neoconservative backlash? Ah, I claim it's exactly that. Just a backlash, a reaction. The action is this one. We are interpolated into this safety. Safety in the sense of no fall, safe sex, or, you know my story, I always re- repeat it, at all levels of consumerism. Like uh, uh, beer, yes, but without alcohol. Uh, 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 and uh, whatever uh, sweet uh, uh, chocolate yes but without sugar and so on and so on to get think a uh, think a product without this potentially dangerous dimension and that's my problem with multiculturalism of course i am for other cultures but that official multiculturalism and tolerance also wants the other without the fall, you know, the other who is like us, and then you idealize the other, which is for me the worst form of racism. Like, I had the experience of my lifetime when I met a couple of years ago in Missoula, Montana, three or four so-called Native Americans. First, they protested about this term, I loved them. They said, we are Native Americans, so you are cultural, we are Native, or what? They, they told me, we much prefer be called Indians because at least our name is a monument to white men's stupidity then, you know. They <laughs> thought they are in India. They, they, in a very nice way, they immediately detect this, you know, they, they told me, they hate so much when white guys come to them and said, you are wonderful, holistic, sensitive, and so on. No, with such proud, I love them. They told me, F- you white people, we burned more forests, we killed more buffaloes than you ever will do and so on. Because they got very well how false this celebration of, uh, you know, harmonious, holistic approach of them is and so on and so on. No, so uh, uh, again, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, that's the paradox of our era where uh, the more we talk about tolerance, the more intolerant we are. And again, this is what bothers me in this obsession with harassment. Of course I'm against harassment when it's real harassment. My God, there are rapes. And I'm one of the few people that I know who is still for death penalty. And uh, I'm here radically for punishing them, don't have any understanding for rapists. All I'm saying is that with harassment, it can get more uh, problematic. As many intelligent, also feminist critics pointed out, that uh, those, if you go to the end in this logic of no harassment, basically you end up, as they say, consensual sex Of course, I'm for consensual sex if it simply means no one is raped. We are both for it. But this consensual sex then all to sudden turns into contractual sex. You know, as two rational people, we make a contract, you do this to me, I do this to you, and so on and so on. Okay, why not if you enjoy it? I have nothing against it. All I'm saying is that when you have authentic passionate love in the process of seduction and not necessarily from the side of the man. You always necessarily have to do something that crucial step which retroactively it de- depends on the receiver can be proclaimed to be a harassment. Harassment means simply, in all brutality, I show you, I display my desire. You know where you have a very nice scene. Although they are pseudo intellectuals, I don't like them. That guy Inaritu, the director. Did you see his with Naomi Watts, Sean Penn, his nice movie, uh, 24 or 23, 24 grams, 21. Uh, don't let's not go into Freudian water. What is it when? Uh, she, Sean Penn, tells her, Naomi Watts, well, that he loves her. And her reaction is, do you know how brutal this is? How dare you tell me something like this? Do you know that you ruined my life and so on? In a way, she is right. This is love. Again, so quite often I claim, what this fear of harassment covers is precisely a fear of effective intersubjectivity, proximity of the other. Where are we here? What are we approaching? Did you see the movie, which I think is a mega classic? The old, uh, now old, British uh, dystopia, Terry Gillian, Brazil. There is a wonderful scene towards the beginning when they, the rich people, with the hero of them, Jonathan Price, go to a restaurant and they have to select food and it's a stroke of a genius. What they get when they are served food is a plate. What is on the plate is just a a sheet like, like like just something like like, like a piece of sheet, formless piece of mud. And then a photo of the the exquisite steak with all the, so the idea is you eat that sheet but the photo tells you what, (laughs) and I think, That's how love more and more functions. You know, you just need some minimal prop, piece of shit to masturbate with your fantasy. I claim that in this sense, even when we really make love, we more and more masturbate. We masturbate with a real partner. It's possible. Because, you know, in the same, just partner is here more and more just to do the work of your hands or whatever but you are really, you remain with your fantasy. Now to conclude if I can conclude a little bit. Uh, which there would be generally the ideology that would fit this situation? I claim but I have deep, deep respect for Buddhism. Now I'm talking about our type of Western Buddhism. I claim it's the way this oriental spirituality functions today on the one hand as already developed in some of my books i claim that no wonder that the majority of top managers today do some type of oriental spirituality and so on i think that to survive in a dynamic of today's capitalism you simply go crazy if you fully identify with it the only way to survive is to maintain a distance, to say it's just a crazy dance of appearances, I'm not really there, and so on and so on. On the other hand, uh, now I come to the interesting point. This is the most radical maybe aspect of the end of the world as we know it. And when I say the end of the world, I don't mean only in a bad sense. I'm just saying we are approaching a certain limit. Who knows what will come? Maybe a better world, maybe a bad world. We, I think, should nonetheless take seriously the results of today's cognitivism and brain sciences, which, and I'm not interested here in the fact, is it true or not? I have my doubts about it. But the point is that the point they are making, and it's taken seriously, is that, you know the result. We, first, we have no free will, and point two, soon it will be possible to directly link our brain to external machines. And the consequences can be quite radical here. For example, I met some scientists in Germany who, together with American scientists, uh, they, even the Germans send me some videos, you know, for example, they already decoded the signals a rat is sending to its legs when it moves around. So. I saw it on DVD, on DVD at least. What you can do is this. You have a rat in a cage, the rat is freely jumping around. Then you click a button, the rat is connected. And you can literally control the rat like a remote control car, left, right, and so on. Because again, through this link, you give signals to her neurons which are giving direction and so on. Now, uh, I spoke with these scientists and of course they are doing what I always suspected that they are doing. What they are really interested is to do this on a human being and they are afraid to go with this into public that there will be some ethical outcry, but they hinted at me that the result is the predictable one, namely what interests them in this. Let's say now you will be the good guy, bit, you control me, no? Like, I walk here freely around, I don't know when you push the button so that you control my neurons which give orders of turn left, right, forward. How will I experience this? And they told me that it looks that the paranoiac bad solution is the true one. That is to say, I will not even know the time controlled. It will not be, oh my God, some foreign power took over. I will still continue to think that, that I freely roam around. And all that stuff then, you know uh, this, how uh, you can move already objects with thoughts. And so, okay, my problem is to conclude the following one. How will we subjectivize this? If we will have to accept, at least the scientific ideology is telling us this, I don't think it's true, but nonetheless, that. In this sense, we are not free. There is no ego. There is no self which is autonomous, free. We are just the result of uh, complex neuronal mechanisms, and so on, and so on. There are, as far as I can see, four main attitudes here. The first one is the naive dualism. Most of the scientists think that it is true that we have no free will, But in our daily life, the way we are wired, constructed, is that we necessarily experience ourselves as having free will. So there will forever be a gap between scientific knowledge and how we experience ourselves. The second position, more radical, interesting, but I think illusory, is the one of more radical cognitivists like that California couple Patricia and Paul Churchland where they claim we can imagine our awareness to change according to the state of our knowledge. They say in the same way that once people thought they're obsessed by demons. But now, when you go crazy, we know it's not demons, it's just your madness. We can also imagine a society where people would communicate blah, 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 without their activity being sustained by the notions of free will, moral responsibility, and so on. You have this position. Then you have some other positions. I will not lose time, but the most interesting position for me here is the one developed by the German scientist Thomas Metzinger, who claims that although insofar as we remain in our ordinary state of mind, we cannot ever accept the result of cognitivism. Like, we can rationally know it, but you cannot really live it. You never treat yourself as if you are just a neuronal automaton. He says, accept Buddhism. If you reach the Buddhist enlightenment, where you accept Anatman, you have no self, and so on, that Buddhist enlightenment is the only existential position which fits the result of modern science. Now, this, and now I will slowly finish, but I hope you got naively my message at a couple of levels from this sexuality, personal identity, moral responsibility, and so on. I just wanted to outline a certain zero level that we are approaching, where we will no longer experience ourselves as free, responsible beings, where, uh, again, all moral consideration will fall away. We will live in a kind of a universalized uh, society of universalized uh, uh, privacy, shameless, and so on and so on, all that stuff. I I am not a pessimist in the sense that this is our fate. But I think that the only way to fight this fate, paradoxically, is to accept it as fate. I claim that what we have to do is precisely to paint a dark picture of where things move if we just led them to move spontaneously where they go. Uh, And this picture, again, it's interesting because it's a society in which overcoming of morality and uh, total self-naturalization will coexist with some kind of a new aseptic, totally non-sexual spirituality. And it would be so interesting to compare here early Soviet communism with today's technological gnostics. You know, all those crazy stories about how uh, uh, technology will bring us to some kind of collective identity where we will live eternally uh, uh, just downloading ourselves as a software program from one to another identity, all that, uh, uh. do you know that all this was already dreamed it throughout the 20s in the Soviet Union. Even Trotsky wrote something about it. The idea was that the true task of Bolsheviks is not only to change society, but to create a new man. And the predominant reading of this new man was that's crucial that he is asexual. Sexuality was, it was really a kind of a spiritual materialist agnosticism. The predominant attitude of Soviet psychologists in the 20s under the influence of Pavlov, although Pavlov was against Bolsheviks privately, but he was the key influence, it was that sexual arousal is the basic weakness of Homo sapiens, that it's unnatural. And it's incredible how what the most advanced dreamers of the Soviet Union in the 20s invented was something that you already find in St. Augustine on some Christians, namely St. Augustine, when he speaks about sexuality, he says, of course, of course there was sex in paradise, but it wasn't sex in this sense of arousal, like a man was able to get erection in the same totally controlled way in which you raise your hand to work on a field and so on. It was just pure instrumental activity. And then you maybe note, it's beautiful, what St. Augustine, the title of the work is The Nuptis et Concupiscentia. What he develops there, that sexuality is not the source of sin, but it's the punishment for the sin. He claims the original sin of man is that he wanted to be like God, master. But then God tells him, I will punish you, and I will punish you so that you will have a desire that you will not control so that you want to be the master of the world like me, ha ha, I will install a drive in you of which even in your, your own house you will not be the master. And then St. Augustine has a wonderful theory of erection, where he says that erection is the ultimate revenge on God towards to men. He says that I will take one of your organs, penis, and you will not control it, like... You will want it to get up, Uh, it will not, or when it will be most embarrassing for you, uh, it will get up, and so on and so on. So the idea is precisely the non-controllable status of erection is God's reminder of our finitude, like you dare to... So what I'm saying is that uh, the goal explicitly is to get out of this dimension. And here I think we should be very open. Through cloning, through all this, maybe sexuality will disappear. Sexuality as we know it, which is not biological. The problem is what will remain of human sexuality the way we know it. Because again, human sexuality is not the same as we all know as natural sexuality. We can imagine a copulation which is totally mechanic and there is nothing sexual about it. Human sexuality is something totally different. I try to develop something. It's always linked to failure, repetition, and so on. In what sense? Let me imagine a, a very everyday obscene scene. Let's say I'm shaking a hand to one of you. Instead of dropping the hand, I go on squeezing it rhythmically. <laughs> Admit it, your association would be, what dirty plans, what, like, the situation would, you know, through just doing repeatedly what normally is done only once, the situation would go sexual in a very embarrassing way. <laughs> and so it's something much more mysterious that goes, so what will be the fate of that? So what's my point here? I'm sorry if it appears that I'm be, uh, uh, painting some dark picture, whatever. No, I'm just saying that, and with this I really want to conclude. Do you know that what uh, Virginia Woolf, otherwise I must say I hate her. I think she was a frigid bitch. I think that... that uh, that uh, Daphne de Maurier is greater writer than Virginia Woolf. I was almost lynched for saying this. But she did something wonderful. You know that in April, in 24, in her essay, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, from 1924, she said that it's on or about April 910, human nature changed, and so on. It's a wonderful British style of this pseudo-empiricism, like the most famous statement in these lines is, you know, at the in mid-nineteenth century claimed God created the world four thousand and something years B.C. at nine in the morning and so on, you know, but what I'm saying is that with all the changes we are living now, it's not just the capitalist dynamic, it's it's what biogenetic means. What All this stuff happening with our desires means and so on. I think that effectively the very basic dimension of what is to be human is changing. In this sense, I claim it's the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. It will change what does it mean to have sex, to be human and so on. But it's not still, I think, Determinism in the sense of new catastrophe or whatever. The situation is open more than ever. And this is my concluding paradox. You know, it looks as if we can't really change anything. Even after September 11th, sorry, I mean uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street. Even after that one, uh, no, because you know I'm a leftist here. You know, when you say September 11th, my association is always... The putsch against Salvador Allende, you know. We should remember the true September 11th. Organized, paid by the United States. You know that the smoking gun was found there. Kissinger signed a letter authorizing the murder of the Chilean minister. But what I'm saying is that, uh, uh, on the one hand, the situation may appear to be desperate. Like, my God, like... And it is desperate, in the sense that leftists were telling us for decades when our situation was relatively prosperous, you remember, they were telling us, uh, now we have apparent welfare, but wait a minute, there will be the crisis, blah, blah. Where? The crisis is here, revolts and so on, and did the left propose anything I am not aware of? Any viable plan, even general idea, you can maybe correct me here. I met demonstrators and, on uh, uh, the Park, Frankfurt, and so on, and I was always asking them a simple stupid question. What do you want? And I got answers like, we want a more just capitalism. It's, you know, it's, but, but I don't blame them. I think that the tragedy of our situation is the following one. And this should be, again, paradoxically, at the same time, the source of our hope. (laughs) Namely, when people tell me, but do you think really that we can change anything? Well, my answer is, I don't know that. But I do know that things are already changing radically. That everything is changing so fast. That's some aspects I try to identify discern today. In our economy, in our, uh, and it's not just capital, look for example, again, look at today's capitalism. I think the whole digital phenomena and so on is much more ambiguous. It may be a triumph of capitalism, but you can see how at the same time, the more we have this informational technology, the more private property itself becomes almost meaningless. I mean, soon everything will be downloading and so on and so on. It will not be possible to control it. So, again, my point is this one. When people tell me nothing can be changed. No, it can because things are already changing like crazy. And what we should say is just this. If we let things change the way they are changing automatically, we are approaching a kind of a new perverse permissively authoritarian society, which will be authoritarian but in a new way, which is why I don't like terms like new fascism and so on, you know. I mean, to use these terms means you are too lazy to think what really is new. And this is what should give us a motivation to act. Things are already changing. Will we simply follow this change? So, So, again, things are changing. I don't think that if we do nothing, we will simply go on enjoying our relative, at least in some parts of the world, prosperity. No, I think that, again, even my god, even Fukuyama himself, the last time I met him, confessed to me he is an honest guy, I like honest conservatives, that, to put it in an ironic way, he is no longer a Fukuyamaist. He told me that with biogenetics, financial crisis, and so on, that his idea of the end of history is over. She admits it. Things are radically changing, and this is what should worry us. We should return the question to those in power, because you know what's so more and more my impression, if I look around the present state of economy, that, you know, My answer to the leftist paranoiacs who claim, oh, there are some people mysterious meeting somewhere between Washington and China and Wall Street deciding everything. I'm tempted to say I'm asking God, praying that it would at least be like that, but it's not. I really don't think we still have a ruling class which is able to rule properly. The situation is much more horrible i don't think there is some big ruling class manipulating everything they don't know what is happening they themselves don't know what is happening in europe where i come from this is even more obvious than anywhere else so again the very reason to worry should be already what motivates us to think what is happening maybe to do something i spoke for much too long, but haha, ha, what can you do? You had to listen. No, thanks very much for your patience. You have been listening to a TVO podcast. Support Ontario's public television. Donate at TVO.